This is the AWC City Voice podcast, where we explore the issues that impact Washington cities. The Association of Washington Cities is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that represents all 281 cities and towns before the state legislature, the state executive branch, and with regulatory agencies. My name is Alicia Seegers Martinelli. I'm the deputy CEO with AWC, and I'm here with government relations advocate Carl Schrader. Hi, Carl. Hey, how are you, Alicia? I'm well. Thanks for joining us here. Yeah. We appreciate it. Uh, we like to refer to Carl as one of our lobbyists. Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the issue areas you cover? Sure. Uh, well, I've been at AWC since uh, 2011, and I cover most of the environmental portfolio, so land use, water quality, stormwater, all that fun stuff. And then I have also covered, uh, throughout that course of that time, affordable housing and homelessness issues for us, uh, which are really prominent this year, and I'm looking forward to the conversation about it. Yeah, and of course, that's what we're here to talk about today. So one of AWC's city legislative priorities this year is asking the state to make investments in affordable housing. So Carl and I are going to have a conversation about that. And again, thanks, Carl, for being here. Carl, this is really an important issue area for cities. Many cities are um, facing challenges surrounding affordable housing. Why don't you give me some examples of what cities are facing and, and what they might be struggling with? Sure, yeah, and you're right. This is an issue that has really... Um exploded in, in importance, I think, across the state. And really what we see is a whole variety of challenges. So it's not uh, any one kind of element of the problem that our cities face. So we have, you know, communities like the Central Puget Sound, where you have the single family home prices that have gone, you know, frankly, kind of crazy, where you're seeing median home sales in the $800,000, $900,000 range. And you can imagine what that does for the average working person's ability to uh, purchase a home in one of those communities. Um, that could mean that you don't aren't you don't have the ability to live close to where you work. You spend you know several hours a day in the car, you know, sort of sucking your life away, uh, or your kids aren't able to uh, find any home to to buy you know anywhere near where your uh, parents live and in the community they grew up in. So those those are some elements of the challenge. And then we have communities. You know, one example that I always sort of stuck with me was uh, City of Wenatchee. They operate the homeless um, system for Chelan and Douglas County. They're kind of a regional uh, center in central Washington. And they've got uh, rental vouchers available for people who are experiencing homelessness to help um, actually pay for apartments to, to put people up in. And they can't find a single place to put them. The vacancy rate is so low in many parts of the state. You know, I remember hearing Kittitas County is less than 1% vacancy. So, you know, the ability to even get a rental um, apartment in many places is really difficult even if you can afford it. And then the cost is, you know, because of that vacancy rate is really um, skyrocketing in some areas. So, you know, we're trying to work on a number of different issues across the spectrum uh, that would impact elements of that. So, you know, everything from uh, funding from the state for subsidized housing for the very low income and homeless to tools to help cities uh, see more affordable market rate development um, to uh, investments in infrastructure that help create capacity for communities to grow. So, you know, I think we've got a number of different irons in the fire to address the different elements of the challenge, but uh, it's really complicated. It's kind of a, it's fun to work on in that sense, but it's a challenge for sure. Of course, this is not a uh, new issue. This is something that AWC's been working on for a while, and you've been leading that fight. Let's go back a biennium. Mm -hmm. And what, what has AWC done to further city interest in the legislature? Uh, what are some of the successes that you've seen? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think one of the biggest ones uh, that's related to housing uh, is our success last year around homelessness, where uh, the state has a, a sort of preeminent funding mechanism called the document recording fee that funds the vast majority of what the state invests in homelessness response, as well as a large portion of the local side of that. And that fee was set to expire and would have resulted in like a two-thirds drop in funding for homelessness programs around the state, uh, which would have been a catastrophe. And uh, so we've been uh, part of a large coalition to advocate to both retain that fee, make it permanent, stop messing around with these fiscal cliffs, and then also increase it because we know uh, we've seen this radical increase, especially in unsheltered homelessness around the state. You know, many of the communities, and it's not just the really urban ones, but um, you're seeing more and more people sleeping outside in tents and public streets and sidewalks. And so figuring out how to uh, help produce resources to help people get off the street and into, into help and treatment and all of that was really critical. So we were very happy to see that happen. Uh, we were also uh, instrumental in working on a bill that would uh, change the kind of a crazy loophole where if you were temporarily disabled and receiving state support and then became qualified because, uh, for a different program because you were um, documented as permanently disabled, you actually lost the amount of resources that you were getting when you were temporarily disabled. And so this was this, this kind of stupid loophole where people were you know, finally housed, getting state support for a disability, and then they actually had that yanked away from them when their disability was determined to be worse. So that was just kind of nuts. And uh, we were able to get that uh, straightened out last year, which you know actually is retaining people in housing that would otherwise become homeless in, in communities all across the state. So that was pretty important. And I think this is going to be a year where we really make more progress on the affordable housing side. So the state sort of did a lot around homelessness last year. And so there's quite a lot of attention on more on the sort of how do we generate more housing units, more subsidies for uh, working people and low-income people um, to get housed, whether or not they're homeless, sort of more on the housing side of the spectrum. So when you refer to housing units, what, what exactly are you talking about? What are, are these are these different things to different people and do different cities um, and when their interests play into this? Yeah, so, you know, I guess one thing that maybe is helpful for people as we, you know, orient the conversation is what people talk about as affordable housing at the state level tends to be housing that is affordable for people who are making 80% of the area median income or less. And that depends. So, you know, that median income in Seattle is quite a lot higher than it would be in Chihuahua, for instance. So in that sense, the state's housing support programs are very variable and they can aim at different levels of income depending on what part of the state they're um, being deployed in. Uh, and then the type of housing can is really dependent on who's accessing those funds. So if if a housing authority in Spokane wants to build a you know four-story, 15-unit apartment complex for people with developmental disabilities, um, they would have the ability to compete for some of these funds and potentially do that. Um, maybe someone in Kirkland wanted to do a 100-unit, very large, just general workforce, low-income housing that wasn't dedicated to any particular, you know, community with challenges, that's another option. And then we have, uh, you know, cities who are really looking at, can we get our infrastructure in order so that just general housing can come in? So we, uh, we heard from places like White Salmon, who is in south, uh, south central Washington, essentially, small community looking to grow, had to turn away somebody that was willing to build uh, 50 uh, detached single-family homes in a big subdivision and a 50-unit apartment complex, 
but they would have had to pay almost a million dollars to extend sewer to this property and you know that just wasn't going to make it feasible for them so they had to leave the community and so we hear that a lot you know cities that would like to see growth who are trying to attract more housing for their um, population and their infrastructure is you know two inch galvanized pipe from the 50s and somebody's got to come in and and uh, fix that up and that costs a lot of money uh, so that's an angle of the out, uh, challenge that you know cities are sort of uniquely positioned to try to deal with and if we can take some of those costs off the plate of the housing developer um, that can help drive down the cost of construction and, and hopefully be a part of addressing this problem so you just talked about different players uh, tell me a little bit about the role that cities play, the role that the state plays, and the way and the role that the the private entities mm-hmm. play. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, one of the things that we're challenged with this year is this um, kind of feeling that the state should step in and uh, take a greater role in local decision making around zoning and density and things like that. Um, and it's it's you know, one of the challenges with cities is we generally are not constructing housing. We're not out actually building anything. We sort of set the table for that development. So we say, you know, this is a part of town that we'd like to see um, denser growth. So we put certain um, transportation infrastructure there. We put good sidewalks there. We try to set the table for that development to occur. But the market has to come in and do that. Um, So one of the challenges with this idea that the state should come in and mandate that we should upzone everywhere and that will make housing actually come. You know, if the market's not ready to do that because you can't generate enough uh, rent to make your project actually pencil economically or it, it's too expensive to collect multiple parcels and, and tear down the buildings that exist there and then build something new, uh, it's not going to happen. So that's one of the challenges we have as we work through from a policy sense, you know, helping legislators and others understand you know, where do cities fit into this whole thing? What can we do? What can't we do? Um, there's a lot of you know, education needed on that, I think. Um, you know, so then there's a whole nonprofit community uh, that Washington State is really blessed to have. We have a, a much more robust nonprofit housing development community than lots of parts of the country, uh, partially because we, we orient a lot of our programs to them. Um, so those are you know, mission-based organizations that are building in, in uh, all communities around the state. Uh, so they are able to focus to get the rents as low as possible because that's what they're trying to do as opposed to uh, get a profit. And then we have a very robust private market, obviously, uh, who you know, are building a variety of different housing types from you know, single-family homes to McMansions to uh, you know, apartment buildings. And so there's... You know, one of the roles that cities have is to try to shape that market a little bit. What are we looking to see built in a particular area? Uh, so if, if we have an area that we're trying to see, uh, let's say it has a sound transit station or some sort of transit infrastructure, you would generally want to pack people into that area. So you wouldn't want to see a lot of new single family development with large lots there because it's not a very good land use. Um, so decision of local electeds to have that vision looking forward to say this is how we're going to go around that infrastructure and the type of community we'd like to see in 15 20 years the decisions that we make today can affect that and those are the decisions that some people think the state should step in and make for us and you can imagine the you know the reception that that gets from at least some electeds Um, but we recognize there's some validity to the idea that we need to you know make sure that we're doing everything we can on this because we do have a crisis on our hands 
And of course, local decision making is not a new uh, position for AWC, something we advocate on behalf of cities all the time. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, where, where zoning and density and infill development solutions can come in and how can the state be a positive partner in that? Well, you know, people look at uh, some of our larger cities, you know, for example, and look at the percentage of their land that is zoned to single family and they say, gosh, is that really appropriate in 2019 where we have this crunch on cost and, and the need to have more and more people grow, coming into our cities? And, and they say, you know, one way to um, kind of jumpstart the housing market would be to take those single family neighborhoods and say, we're going we're gonna to allow anybody to build, you know, an apartment building anywhere in a single family neighborhood, for instance. That's kind of a, a um, extreme version of that view. Uh, but the idea is essentially that, that having that single family zoning is a constraint on supply and that if we were to remove that constraint, then more development would occur, more housing units would be built, that would drive down cost, kind of a basic economic uh, argument. Um, the, the challenge that some cities have, take Shoreline for instance, they had a uh, sound transit station that was uh, proposed to go into an existing single family neighborhood. Uh, like I said, not an ideal land use, um, and, but they know if you were to come into that neighborhood and say, you know, because of this infrastructure, we need to start seeing denser development. We're going to allow, um, you know, taller apartments in your neighborhoods. That's going to have an impact on that community. And, and many of the people who live there are going to question, well, what's my neighborhood going to look like when that happens? And it's kind of um, concerning for a lot of people and that sort of thing. Um, so in Shoreline's case, they went through a pretty challenging and robust community conversation, ultimately decided to to do that, to allow and to focus denser development around those transit stations. Um, there was some controversial elections around this and, you know, the community really uh, essentially weighed in on whether that was the right thing to do or not. The council that approved that, as I understand it, most of them were reelected. So, you know, some of that concern about our local electeds, you know, to... Um, too responsive to the neighborhoods is wasn't borne out in that case. So as part of that plan, they said, we're going to concentrate development around these transit stations and then in other parts of the community, we're going to continue to grow um, in the more traditional kind of single family sense. And one of the challenges with the state stepping in and substituting their judgment for these local communities, if they were to come in and say, within a mile of any transit station, you have to zone to X capacity, and that was inconsistent with what Shoreline had done, it would really undermine that whole community conversation that they had had to say, we're going to grow here, we're not going to grow in a really intense way in this part of the town. And really, why should the state who doesn't have the direct access to the people who live in these areas, doesn't have the, you know, the level of interest in making sure it's done right, or at least the expertise to know whether it's being done right, why should their, their decisions about how to grow in Shoreline be more important than the, than the people who are elected to lead Shoreline and the community members who live in Shoreline? So those are the sorts of tension points that we try to educate people about and, and think through. How do we help cities make some of these decisions and tough decisions, but not substitute the state's judgment for them? 
So Carl, a couple of times now, you've, you've mentioned local elected officials who are governing today with a view towards tomorrow and mm-hmm. the future. Tell yeah. us about population growth that it's expected in the state and how local communities are positioned to, um, to deal with that, and the, particularly in light of the affordable housing crisis that we're experiencing today. Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the sort of rules of thumb I I will tell people is, you know, roughly we're going to grow as a state a million people uh, in the next decade and two million in the next 20 years and three million in the next 30 in a state with roughly seven million people. That's a lot of growth. Uh, So that's the equivalent of, you know, like a Bellingham, a Spokane, a Kirkland, a Tacoma, a Richland uh, and and three Olympias, you know, and I'm just kind of rattling those off. But that's in the neighborhood of a million people, um, probably low. And so how are we going to accommodate that many um, new members to our cities? And, and the stats are roughly 60%, two-thirds of those um, new people will live in a city. Uh, so that's quite a lot of growth that we need to uh, deal with. And that means new um, you know, schools and new parks and new um, houses and everything all needs to be fit into our communities. And the growth management system of the state has... Um, pretty strict boundaries. Urban growth areas are difficult to expand, so a lot of that is going to have to go into a constrained land area. And so one of the things that cities are responsible for is is comprehensive planning and looking towards the next 20 years. Uh, There's a process to determine where all of that new growth is going to go, and then we have to plan how are we going to accommodate it, and do we have enough land available, and do our zoning regulations allow it, and our development regulations, and everything else. Uh, And so that's one of the critical places where cities really engage in this housing issue is planning for that future growth. And, you know, one of the challenges we've had recently is um, faster growth than we planned for in some areas. So that's exacerbating some of these problems. But yeah, that's a, you know, one of the fundamental responsibilities of local electeds. So cities also, of course, are critical uh, providers of infrastructure systems like water and wastewater and streets. So tell me about how infrastructure plays into the housing crisis. Uh, you've mentioned white salmon, and of course there are other stories around the state. Uh, what are some of the tools in the toolbox that cities have or have had uh, to provide these infrastructure systems? So from a like a real basic level, you hear from cities like Yelm that are, because of an infrastructure crunch and, and specifically their water rights um, uh, authority, they have something like 120 connections left until they have to s- stop allowing any new development into town because they uh, their uh, water system doesn't have enough legal authority or water to provide for any more growth until they figure that out, and that's a separate uh, subject. Um, but so we, you know, at a very basic level, have to be able to provide for drinking water and um, in most communities sewer and um, sort of basic infrastructure services for housing development. And if that's not there, uh, it needs to be created and paid for, which can add to the cost of housing. Uh, then there's the sort of transportation side. Um, you know, anybody that lives in Western Washington has experienced with, uh, for the most part, the, the challenging traffic and congestion that we have up and down the I-5 corridor. Uh, that's, um, you know, not just on the freeways, but in many of our cities, we have uh, very challenging transportation congestion issues. And if you put um, a very large housing development right down in the middle of that with a whole bunch of new trips every day, you exacerbate those problems. So cities uh, are responsible for managing all of that. And part of that is to expect new development to pay to address some of those congestion, at least to the extent that they're creating new congestion. 
uh, and that can be really expensive. So Kenmore, for instance, has a really challenging transportation congestion um, problem that's associated with housing where they've got a north-south arterial connecting to an east-west SR-522 state highway uh, with a really underdeveloped but um, very viable uh, parcel for quite a lot of housing. Um, but because of the congestion issues there, it's not really going to be feasible for them to add thousands of new citizens into that area without addressing the traffic challenges, which aren't really necessarily created by Kenmore. As I understand it, it's like sort of toll diversion from the recent tolling on 520 and regional growth that has um, caused more and more people to be coming through that area. Uh, but they can't allow a whole bunch of new development without addressing that. So the cost of mitigating uh, that congestion right now is going to lie on whoever develops that parcel. And that is going to add cost, right? I mean, it's sort of an obvious thing, uh, but that makes some of these projects difficult to pencil, especially at any sort of affordability, um, you know, for the average working person. Uh, so those are the sorts of infrastructure systems that cities are responsible for. We're really trying to convince the state this year to uh, reinvigorate the Public Works Trust Fund, bring back some of the resources that they had diverted off uh, in the budget crunch a few years ago, and dedicate those to infrastructure systems that would increase housing capacity in cities. Uh, so that's kind of an exciting uh, proposal that would both help fund basic infrastructure, which is of course a uh, long-term and all, all, probably all-time need for cities, as well as help pick away at this housing crisis and is something that really could be valuable across the state. So, of course, you just mentioned the diversion of the Public Works Trust Fund, which uh, since about 2013 has uh, diverted about a billion dollars in monies that otherwise would have gone to uh, cities and towns, uh, counties um, as well, uh, to support these infrastructure systems. Tell us what the efforts are this year to reinstate a portion of that. So Public Works Trust Fund, as you all probably know, is a, a revolving loan program that is fed by both repayments from earlier loans, the program's been around since the mid-1980s, and then also has three separate tax sources that uh, historically have flowed into that account, um, solid waste taxes and tipping fees, um, a state's portion of the utility tax, and then a portion of the state's real estate excise tax, which is the tax that is on um, the transfer of real estate and selling of homes. Uh, so particularly with that uh, real estate excise tax called REIT, um, that's about 80 or so million dollars every two years that has um, been diverted away from basic infrastructure into addressing the state's operating budget uh, shortfalls. And we think that now is the time, given all of this housing crisis, um, to take that money and put it back into infrastructure and dedicate it to infrastructure that will support more housing development. So there's a number of different reasons for that. Uh, real estate excise tax obviously is associated with housing, so there's a good nexus. Um, also, when they started taking all this money, they made these projections about how much it was going to um, help them with their problem, how much was going to come in over over the course of these years from REIT. And actually, they've seen more than $60 million more dollars come in than they expected and planned for. So we kind of think they've they've sort of gotten their fair share of that for the operating budget, and it's probably time to put it back into the Public Works Trust Fund. So Washington ranks dead last in the country for rental vacancy rates. Uh, we also have a statistic that for every $100 uh, of an increase in rent, there is an increase of up to 6 to 32% in homelessness. So this is a very visible uh, crisis for cities and, and, and many city residents and businesses. What are cities doing to address this problem? 
one of the ways you address that is just basic supply, right? So we think that it's important to do as much as possible to clear out any of the impediments to getting housing developed around the state. So we're supportive of permit streamlining efforts and ways to remove duplicative levels of review, sort of uh, SEPA streamlining, for instance, uh, the state's Environmental Policy Act requires quite a lot of review of new projects. And in some cases, it's duplicative of other environmental rules that are out there since SEPA was established. So the Growth Management Act and shorelines and stormwater permits and all these things have come in place since SEPA was established. And so those are already taking care of those impacts to the environment. And if we can remove a duplicative level of review, uh, that will help facilitate more prompt housing development. One way to do that is to allow cities access to funds to do upfront environmental review. That's something that some of the more conservative legislators are interested in promoting this year that we think is a good idea. Then, you know, we're supportive of the state's housing trust fund, which is the most important funding program at the state level to build apartments and and homes for the lowest income. There's really no way to house somebody that is, you know, destitute, homeless on the street, has no income in a private sector apartment. They don't make enough money to afford the rent. And so for some portion of the population, the state really needs to step in and and provide for that. And then we're supportive of as many local option funding sources as we can get the state to approve. For cities who want to go even further than that, who want to have a conversation with their community about raising a sales tax or a property tax or some other funding source to make direct investments in housing in their community. And we have a number of examples of cities who've done that over the years. Uh, Olympia just passed a sales tax uh, for housing. Even Ellensburg, small city in central Washington, Bellingham, Vancouver, Seattle's had a housing levy for years. So we're seeing more and more of that going forward. And we've had a number of conversations and are continuing to have conversations about is the state interested in providing an incentive for cities to do that by putting even more money on the table where local government could put a match up and draw down a portion of the state sales tax to make targeted investments in their community. So those are the sorts of things that we think would be important. Also, there's this question of, you know, how do we how do we allow for more density and zoning? And maybe there's opportunities to incentivize with infrastructure funding or some other way more communities to um, pursue even denser development. Um, so I think, you know, the people talk about it, silver bullets and that sort of thing. We think there's a need for silver buckshot. There's not going to be any one thing that is uh, the perfect solution for everybody. But if we can put enough tools on the table that uh, attack different elements of the problem, we hope that every city that has this problem and wants to do something about it will will get some new options and, and tools from the state. So Carl, some people would say that the affordable housing crisis that we're, we're facing right now and the homelessness crisis that we're facing are, are truly interwoven and um, solving one would solve the other. Can you respond to that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of elements at, uh, at play in, in all these issues, and there's certainly some truth to that statement. Um, but it's not entirely the case, I wouldn't say. So one of the things that we face here in Washington, right, is the we have the worst Uh, vacancy rates in the whole country as of the end of 2017. Now, you don't want to be first on that list either. You want to be somewhere in the middle. But that means that it's very difficult to get an apartment in many parts of the state. And it's not just the urban ones. And when it's a tight rental market like that, 
rental prices increase. And there's statistics out there that for every $100 increase in rental prices, you see a 6 to 32% increase in homelessness. So there's a direct connection between the ability for people to affordably rent a home and some of those people who aren't able to do that falling into homelessness. And we've seen since 2011, the average rental cost of a one-bedroom apartment in Washington has gone up almost 50%. So that's really contributing to that problem. And with vacancy rates, you know, in a, in a perfect world, I'm told you would want to have like a 5 to 7% natural vacancy rate. And we're in the less than one in many parts of the state. And so that has a direct impact on housing cost. So yes, addressing affordable housing and getting more supply on the street will benefit our homelessness response. But it's not in and of itself enough. I mean, if you think about people who are having difficulties on our street with persistent, untreated, severe mental illness, yes, they will not get better without housing. And that is an and a critical part of the response and the things that we're advocating for in the mental health world to have permanent supportive housing as part of the solution here. But it's not sufficient on its own because those people also need treatment. They need to be able to get into facilities. We need a much greater capacity in the mental health system, both inpatient and outpatient. So it has to be a variety of different things. Unfortunately, there's not going to be any simple single solution to any of these problems. Well, Carl, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate the time that you've spent to educate us about these issues and AWC's solutions and ask to the legislature. Yeah, well, thank you for the time. And, and I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't make one plug for the listeners out there who are city officials. Please get in touch with us and your legislator and share your stories and help us craft these tools in a way that will be helpful for your community because we, we're here for you. So thanks for the opportunity, Alicia. It's been a good conversation. Well, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. At AWC, our mission is to serve our members through advocacy, education, and services. This includes the AWC Employee Benefit Trust, AWC Risk Management Service Agency, AWC Workers' Comp Retro Program, AWC Drug and Alcohol Consortium, GIS Consortium, and the AWC JobNet. Visit wacities.org to plug in.